Mark chapter 8, we're going to be in verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark 8, 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Once you have found it, if you could go ahead and stand, please, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. Uh, Today we are reaching the halfway point of the gospel of Mark. We took a couple of weeks off for Palm Sunday and then uh, Resurrection Sunday last week. And we're going to jump right back into our series working through the, the gospel of Mark. And today is the halfway point. And given how uh, Mark structured his gospel, we could expect that there's a lot that's going to be going on at the halfway point. And, and there is, in fact, and we'll, we'll see some of that. So far, Jesus and his disciples have mostly stayed in the northern region of, uh, of Israel around Galilee. I think we have a map that we can pull this up. Uh, this is where Jesus grew up. This was Jesus' hometown. You can see the region of Galilee there. And then if you look uh, close to the top middle, you'll see the town of Caesarea Philippi, where Uh, Jesus and his disciples interact with these themes that we'll look at today. But this halfway point now marks the beginning of of Jesus' slow but deliberate journey south into the region of Judea uh, and then more specifically to Jerusalem. He's he's leading his disciples to a deliberate uh, confrontation with the religious and political authorities. And Mark will be leading us uh, um, now to the climax of this book. Uh, what happens in Jerusalem. But still for now, uh, Jesus is in uh, Galilee and in this far northern region of Caesarea Philippi. There's three major things that happen at this kind of central point of the Gospel of Mark. Three things that we'll circle back to next week. First is Peter's confession. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, we haven't heard that word in the gospel since the very beginning when Mark, as the narrator, introduces Jesus as the Messiah. No one else has identified Jesus as the Messiah so far. 
We've been seeing Jesus slowly reveal who he is, and now finally Peter, on behalf of the disciples, identifies Jesus as the Messiah. That's the first big thing that we see. The second big thing that uh, that we see in this passage is that for the very first time, Jesus predicts his death. Now, we're coming out of Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday, so for us, that maybe doesn't really jump out because we know the story. We know that central to Jesus, his identity, and what he accomplishes for us is his death and resurrection. That was not common knowledge to the disciples, to the people following Jesus. This was the first time, it wouldn't be the last, it was the first time that they had heard Jesus predict that he would suffer and be executed. And then the third major thing that we see in this passage, the central point of the Gospel of Mark, is a description of discipleship, a description of what it means to follow Jesus, one that involves self-denial, one that involves following Jesus in the way that he describes for himself, a way of suffering and even death. So we see Peter confess Jesus as the Messiah, we see Jesus predict his death, and we see then a description of of costly discipleship. All three of these we're going to dig into deeply next week, so I do hope you'll be with us. Today I want us to see one thing. Mark uh, sets up this passage in a very subtle but very intentional way. There's something he wants us to see. The passage that we looked at with the kids a minute ago is immediately preceding our passage today. You may remember it from a few weeks back when Jesus is in Bethsaida. This blind man comes to him. And Jesus heals him uh, over some strange events, first spitting, then he can't quite see, and then healing him completely. Mark deliberately puts these two passages together because there's intentional parallels between that passage of the blind man's healing and the passage we just read now. And I want to point out these parallels uh, to you. I think this is going to help make sense of why Mark structures it this way. The first thing, the first parallel, is that Jesus, when he meets the blind man, he takes the blind man with him out of the village of, of Bethsaida. He takes him away from the crowds. He takes him away from anybody who knows him, and that's where the healing takes place. Similarly, Jesus has taken his disciples away from everything they know. He's taken them north away from the villages, north away from the the Lake of Galilee where they had made their living. He takes them into a region where the culture was different, where the, 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 the history was different, where the language may have been different. And again, we'll dive in more deeply next week. But Mark is showing us these parallels. Jesus takes both the blind man and then his disciples away for this significant interaction. The second parallel, Jesus asked the blind man after he initially Uh, heals him, he asks him, do you see anything? Jesus, after bringing his disciples away from everything they know, asks them, but who do you say that I am? It's a very similar question. To the blind man, what do you see? Do you see anything? To his disciples, what do you see? Who do you see? Who do you say that I am? Both of them are provoked to describe what they see in front of them. I hope by now you're seeing how Mark kind of makes these two passages side by side, the parallels here. These these first two parallels are are the setup, and then the last two parallels are, are the payoff. So here's the third one. The man is healed initially. Jesus says, can you see? And he says, well, I see people. He must have been able to see at some point in his life. He knew what people looked like. I see people. They just kind of look like blurry trees moving around. He knows that he's not been fully restored to his vision. Jesus asks P- 
Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. Okay, now these are parallel to each other, so let's, let's pay attention. What, what's happening here? Is this the right answer? You're the Messiah. Is Peter correct? Well, it depends on what Peter means by Messiah, right? Depends on what expectations Peter had when he thought about that word Messiah, which means the anointed one, the, the person who was anticipated to, to rescue and liberate the nation of Israel. So Mark, by making Peter's answer parallel to the blind man's answer, Mark is trying to show us that the disciples are getting closer to understanding who Jesus is, but they're not there yet. You're the Messiah. On the surface, that sounds good. They're there, right? But Mark is like, it's like blurry trees still, though. They know they're not there yet. They can't really see Jesus yet for who he is. They're getting closer, but the disciples, like the blind men, still have blurry vision. That's the similarity between the disciples and the blind man. They both have blurry vision at this point, but there's a key and very important difference here, and it's this. The blind man knows that he's still blind. The disciples, they think they're good. The disciples, they're like, no, we got 20-20. We know what's going on. We know who you are. We're good. The blind man says, ah, it's fuzzy. It's still, I'm not quite there yet. How do we know that the disciples think that they're good? How do we know that they're not like the blind man and acknowledging their own blindness? When Jesus goes on to describe this is what it means to be the Messiah, I will suffer and die, what's Peter's response? What's his response? He rebukes Jesus. Jesus, no, that's not right. That's wrong. You're incorrect. Peter assumes that his vision is better than Jesus' vision. He assumes that that his understanding of Jesus' call and vocation is more accurate than Jesus' understanding. This is how we know that the disciples do not have 20-20 vision. Are you with me? See how Mark is setting this up, right? Back and forth, these, these, these parallels here. The blind man comes to Jesus out of his great need. He knows he's blind. He knows he needs to be healed. The disciples, they continue to come to Jesus with their agendas. They continue to overlay their motives, their assumptions, their agendas onto Jesus, and so they miss the fact that they're actually very, very blind to who Jesus is. What is your starting point? Is your starting point when it comes to Jesus more like the blind man where you know your need? Where you know your blindness? Where where you know your need to be healed, to be transformed? Is that your starting point? Or is your starting point when it comes to Jesus closer to the disciples where you're, you're pretty sure that you know what's going on? You're pretty sure that you know God's plan for your life. You're pretty sure you know what Jesus' priorities for you and your family are supposed to be. What's your starting point when it comes to Jesus? Here's the thing. In the upside-down kingdom of God, it is those who think they can see who are actually blind to Jesus. And it is those who acknowledge their blindness who can most clearly see Jesus. You see that? Those of us who think, 
I can see, I'm good, I know what's going on. We are the ones who are most blind to who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. Those of us who come to Jesus out of our great and desperate need, knowing our spiritual blindness, knowing our physical need, we are the ones who most clearly see who Jesus is and what he is about. Here's the fourth parallel. The man says, it's still blurry. Jesus touches his eyes and he heals him completely. He can see perfectly. And then Jesus says, basically, don't tell anybody. Sends him away. To the disciples, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. And Jesus' immediate response, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. So there's similarities and there are differences here, right? Similarities is that Jesus hushes both of them up. Hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell Now, this is practical. People are looking for a Messiah. They have ideas about what the Messiah should be, who the, who the Messiah should wage war against, Rome. So Jesus is not ready to get tangled up in that yet, right? He doesn't want to be identified as that kind of Messiah, so keep it quiet for now. Here's the difference. With the man who was blind, there was actual healing. For the disciples, there was just, okay, hush up. They both both were told to be quiet. But Mark tells us that only the blind man was actually healed. He was the only one who could actually see. The disciples continued to stumble around, as we see with Peter, like, like everything still looks like blurry trees. The hope for the disciples is that they too will arrive at that point. Again, Mark is, is, is putting these two next to each other on purpose. The disciples aren't there yet. They can't see Jesus yet. But we see with the blind man, there will come a day when they too will see fully who Jesus is. It's just not yet. We're going to get into more of that this week. What they had to begin to understand about Jesus before they could fully take him for who he was. Here's the two takeaways, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The first is this. You and I will struggle to see Jesus for who he is. You and I do struggle. You and I are struggling. You and I have struggled. You and I will struggle to see Jesus for who he really is. Again, we're going to get into this more next week, but for now, let's say it again, and maybe this can suffice for now. When we start with our agendas, My life, that relationship, my version of the future. When we start with our agendas and impose them onto Jesus, we will always remain blind to him. Our relationship with God, when we start with our own agendas, will always feel like the equivalent of looking at fuzzy people like trees who are moving around. Not quite there, not quite in focus, not quite able to follow closely when we start with our agenda. With Jesus, our starting point always has to be our need. Our need for him to heal us, our need for him to transform us, our need for him to change us, our need for him to sustain us, our need for him to provide for us. We come to Jesus not because we know his agenda for our life. We come to Jesus because we've reached the end of ourselves. And we're ready to give him our life regardless of what his agenda for it will be. 
Anybody say amen with me on that? Regardless of what his agenda for our life will be. Here's the second takeaway. It's hard for us to see Jesus for who he is, but Jesus really wants us to see who he really is. It's hard for us to see him for who he is, but Jesus really wants us to see him for who he really is. He touches the man's eyes once. How can, can you see? Can you see yet? No, not quite yet. Let me make sure you can completely see. Let me make sure that you are completely healed. Let me make sure that your vision is 2020. Jesus will not give up on his disciples. You and I, we would have given up a long time ago. Think about all the ways the disciples have missed who Jesus is. Jesus will not give up on them. He will continue to touch their minds, their motives, their hearts, their plans until they too can see him for who he is. Jesus really wants us to see him for who he is. Why? Why is this? Why is this so important to God that he would send his son so that we could see and know God? Is it because God is so desperate for our attention? Is God narcissistic? He always needs to be the center of our attention. Well, he wouldn't be God if this was true. If he wasn't self-sustaining in and of God's self, God would not be God. So this can't be it. Why? Why is it so important to God that you can see him for who he is? Jesus wants to heal our blind eyes so that we can see him fully. Why? Because when we see Jesus clearly, then we can finally see everything clearly. When we see God clearly, we can see everything clearly. God is making all things new through his Messiah, through Jesus. Disciples aren't there yet. They're a little too blind to see that this is a cosmic, universal, redemptive mission that God is on through Jesus. The disciples can't quite see that this is not just about Jesus performing a few miracles in order to rally the troops, in order to storm the gates in Jerusalem and drive out the Romans. That's still their vision. That's still what their blind eyes can see. They can't see that Jesus has actually come to make all things new. Jesus really wants us to see him. Jesus really wants us to see him for who he is. Why? Because when you see him, when you set aside your agendas for him, when you take him on his terms, you begin to see everything clearly. You begin to see yourself more clearly. I know for many of us, there's a level of self-hatred that we carry around with us every single day. That there are, there's this consistent voice in our head saying, you don't measure up, you don't look like this standard, you didn't try hard enough back then, and so you're paying the consequence for that now. I know this to be true about many of us in here today. This constant voice of lie in our head saying, this is who you are. This is what you have done. This is what you will amount to. This is how people see you. When we see Jesus clearly, 
we will see ourselves clearly. We will understand that we are beloved by God. We will understand that there was no price too high to be paid for us. We will understand that there is nothing that we have done, nothing that we will do, nothing that we are doing that would separate us from the God who loves us. When we see Jesus clearly, we will see ourselves clearly. Can I get real practical for a second? Some of you who have those voices in your head, you're so focused on quieting the voice that you give the voice more power than it deserves. What about shifting even, let's start with 10% of the energy you are giving to that lying voice to considering the one who saved you. To meditating and considering and contemplating on the Jesus who gave everything for you. How about, can we start with 10%? Is that okay? 10%, how many hours a week do you give right now to beating up on yourself? Take an inventory. Start with 10%. I'm going to give 10% to just rejoicing in the fact that God loves me. That the Father delights over me. That the Spirit of the living God chose to reside in me. That my life is hidden with Christ. The old is gone and the new has... Can you give 10% of your time to that this week? begin to see yourself more clearly. You'll begin to see your neighbors more clearly. You'll begin to see the person who is the other in your life. You'll begin to start seeing through that. Those places which our culture has formed us to have knee-jerk anxiety because That person is coming to me because I'm walking through that neighborhood because I have to have a conversation with that person as we consider who Jesus is. When we consider who Jesus loves, when we consider who Jesus was there at the beginning of time, when all was formed and all was created, our hearts will begin to change to those who we have made other than us, different than us. People who we don't really have to consider or have compassion towards. Our hearts will be shattered. We begin to see who Jesus really is. Amen? Can I, like, fathom a guess that we'd actually begin to see our, our city differently? When we see who Jesus is? We were doing prayer around the schools yesterday. Shout out to the nine people who came out on the April snow shower. Some of us were talking afterwards of just the, the despair in our city. Many of you participated in the Day of Action with our teachers and other folks around the city on Friday. And there went, there's a sense of despair in many corners of our city right now. As people are tired of watching good things get defunded. People are tired of watching kind of systematic racism entrenched to divide some and elevate others and push some in this way and bring others. And there's a fatigue. There's a tiredness. And there's a, there's a slow burning rage that can be paralyzing. 
And so we look around us and we don't see potential anymore. We don't see possibility. We don't see what God is actually doing. We only see lack. We only see emptiness. We only see hopelessness. We only see what could have been. Do you know that God has not abandoned Chicago? Do you know that God has not been absent from our city for one single moment? Maybe Christians have. Maybe we took a vacation, but God didn't. Do you know that God is not absent from Springfield? Do you know that God is not absent from the governor's office, from our mayor's office? I know that's a stretch for some of you. What happens when we begin to see Jesus, not meek and mild, cozy and comfortable, but ruler of the universe, placing all enemies on, what what happens when we start to worship that Jesus? What happens when we consider the Jesus who was born not in a palace, but in a stable, who was born not in the limelight, but where nobody should have seen him, invisible to the powers that were? Does that change how we think about our city? Does that change how we think about our blocks and our neighborhoods? Does that change where the potential is? Does that change what you give your life to? Does that change who you invest in? Does that change how you will keep saying yes to God's call in your life in this place? Are you guys with me? Okay, I'm done. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I want you to take and feast today. This is not a solemn ceremony. It's a feast. Because Jesus stepped into our broken world so that we could see God for who he is. One day we will see him fully. Still a little bit, still a little bit of a cloudy thing that we're looking through, but we see him enough to respond to him, to know him, to be changed by him, to be obedient to him, to know the abundant life in this place at this time that he promised us. Amen? It can be really hard for us to see who Jesus is. But thanks be to God, he really wants you to see him. He really wants you to know him. He really wants you to be transformed by him. So God, would you take this? story, this blind man who was touched by the spit-filled hand of Jesus so that his eyes could be opened? Would you take this story of disciples who keep missing it, but, but, but who will not be written off, who will not be forsaken, who will not be left aside? Would you place us in these stories as a people who I miss you all the time? who impose our own agendas, our own plans, our own motives onto you all the time. And yet this morning, as best we can, we're coming to you. We're coming to this table. We're coming to this feast. And as we do, we are acknowledging, God, we are a needy people. Oh, we're a hungry people. We need you to fill us. We need you to sustain us. We need you to satiate us. We need you to to, to give us the, the blessed, the good life that you promised us in this place and in this time. Holy Spirit of the living God, give us a supernatural ability, even for these moments, to set aside our plans and our agendas. Would we be, as James tells us, a people who could say, only if God God wills will I do this tomorrow. 
Only if God wills will I go there. Only if God wills will I take that step. Today I come empty. Today I come hungry. Today I come needy. Today I come setting all agenda, all motives aside. Jesus, we, we, we want you. We want you to give us your agenda. We want you to give us your motivation and motives for our lives. Heal our blind eyes. Heal our blind eyes so that we could see you and know your love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.